0: encouraging, exciting, powerful, just to see Christ. You know, we we think, God. the New Testament's about Christ, but the Old Testament's about Christ. And uh, when we get glimpses and when we see him, it just excites my heart and I have no doubt yours. And um, just the response of people last week in relation to the message, and they were blessed. And so I thank God for that. So I look forward to sharing Uh, with you, this second part. But last week, just to quickly reflect, we looked at, in Hebrews chapter 6, as we're, we're looking at our text, we looked at this word that we find where it says, having fled for refuge. Having fled for refuge. Now, To think, remember this was written to Hebrew Christians and so um, uh, Paul in writing would understand clearly what he was saying when he said that. And the Holy Spirit is alluding to various uh, concepts and truths that are contained in the Old Testament and we went through that and identified what what the Bible refers to as the city of refuge and the various cities and what they meant um, by the names and by the cities that they were placed in. There were six and how all the the issue of the city of refuge is clearly identifiable as Jesus Christ himself. And so, uh, it's exciting. We have fled for refuge. We have run to Jesus. And now we are safe and secure in him. But there's another phrase that we're going to look at in this particular verse and we're going to read it. And uh, we're going to see again the various truths that are attached to it that uh, are clearly on display for us throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible itself. So let's read in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 17 through to verse 20 again and uh, we'll look at one particular phrase and actually a few other scriptures as well. So thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul both sure and steadfast which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, remember, just to put in view and in focus, the theme here has been strong consolation, those words that we see in in the verse. Because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit wants to give us as a Christian, the child of God, the believer, the assurance and confidence of the immutability of God who cannot lie, that we can take such we can have such faith and assurance that if God says it, Amen, I believe it and I receive it. Hallelujah. And so this is the this is the language of faith. We believe, therefore we speak, and our, our faith is based upon the uh, unchangeableness of God. And so we will, that's what we're looking at as we look at these things. We're identifying our own strong consolation in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a word that follows, having fled for refuge, to lay hold of. Look at verse uh, 18. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, it's obvious that that hope is Jesus Christ. But in using the phrase to, have, to lay hold, having fled for refuge with the, the city of refuge in mind, to lay hold of the hope. So in what way uh, uh, do we lay hold of the hope? What is the scripture saying to us? We just kind of read it and we just think in a a casual, uh, shallow sense that, yeah, to lay hold of Christ. And it doesn't mean that. But when you see what it means in the scripture, it has a whole greater significance and, and, and underneath that there's a whole revelation, again, of Christ Jesus himself. And so we want to identify what the Holy Spirit is saying. And so in what way have we laid hold of him? Or the hope that is set before us, which is Christ, it is found in an Old Testament truth that I want to examine with you, and what is referred to as the horns of the altar, the horns of the altar now this this, uh, this truth is contained as we will see as we track it through the Old Testament, and it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus in such a wonderful, precise manner, that again, it will cause our hearts to rejoice. At the end of this message, amen, we ought to be jumping up and down and shouting, praise the Lord. Okay? Alright, good. (laughs) And I mean that, literally. The horns of the altar. And so let's look at this. Now, when we talk about the, the horns of the altar and laying hold of the question arises for some, uh, well, what does that mean? Is there a connection? Why do we have to lay a hold of the horns of the altar? What does that mean? And so, this is what we're going to look at. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Exodus and we're going to start in verse 27. or oh, sorry, chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. I want you, and we've got, to, we've got to track it so we can see it and identify it because God is building upon this truth to... It is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But in Exodus chapter 27, we have here God is instructing Moses on the uh, the building of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent and it had various furnishings that were contained in it and it contained of the outer court and the holy of holies and then the holy place uh, Holy Holies, actually, the, the three-part as, as, as you progressed in and through. But it was structured in a certain way. And the manner in which God had ordained this, it all typifies and teaches us various truths and realities concerning Jesus Christ. In actual fact, the whole tabernacle is Christ. Every aspect that is contained within the tabernacle is symbolic of Christ. And when we begin to see this issue of the horns of the altar, you're going to see how something that seems so little, little and insignificant within its structure is again fully symbolic of Christ and his purpose. And we will make the connection of what it means to lay a hold of him in this literal sense by looking at this reality. So look at verse tw- chapter 27, Exodus chapter, uh, verse number 1. Now, what we have here is a reference to the altar of burnt offering. We're going to look at two altars. It's the altar of burnt offering. And God is giving Moses the instruction on how to build this altar. And let's read the first couple of verses, only verse 1 and 2. He says, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns. On its four corners, its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, this is the altar of burnt offering. This is the altar in which, the uh, uh, under the instruction and in, in within the law of Moses, when the high priest would uh, offer up those sacrifices and uh, get the blood of the offering, they would put the body of the sacrifice and they would burn it in the altar in, in the, as a burnt offering in this particular altar, the altar of burnt offering. It was uh, when you entered into the tabernacle, this was the first uh, thing you came across right in front of you. It was the altar of burnt offering. And so then you, that was in the outer court but, of, of the tabernacle. But as you proceeded inside uh, uh, into the holy place, there was another altar. It was called the altar of incense. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. And so here is the altar of incense. And so God uh, God speaks to Moses. He says, You shall make, verse 1, you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a moulding of gold all around. Notice one, the uh, the brazen altar, the burnt offering is an altar of bronze made of acacia wood, overlaid with bronze and the altar of incense is in the holy place and gold being symbolic of the divinity of Christ and uh, here's this altar, it's the altar of incense with horns. Now, there's horns on each of these altars and I want us to identify their very purpose in the uh, plan uh, of God in instituting this. So, let's look at Exodus 30, verse 10. Go down to verse 10. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns, this is the altar of incense, once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. See, upon the altar of incense, we know on the day of atonement where the sin offering was being made, the, 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 uh, the sin offering was killed and obviously the body was going to be burnt in the burnt offering uh, and then the blood that was taken was going to be uh, taken into the holy place and the high priest on the day of atonement once a year was to take that blood and he was going to uh, apply it to the altar of incense. Now turn to Leviticus chapter 4. We'll see this. Leviticus chapter 4. So, God, again, is giving the instructions of the sin offering. This is the, the sin offering on the Day of Atonement and this is what the high priest was to do under the instructions of God. Verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So here it is, God is giving specific instruction on the Day of Atonement, the sin offering, the blood that is to be taken is uh, to be uh, applied on the horns of the altar, on the incense altar. This incense altar was just before the veil of the temple that allowed the, uh, that the priest went into once a year, the Holy of Holies. And he was to put that, take that blood of the sin offering and he was to apply it on the four horns of the altar and it was the altar of incense. It was a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto the Lord. And so again, you're probably making the connections here. I'm not doing that right now, but I'm just laying it out. And so here you have it. Uh, That blood was a sweet smell unto God because without the shedding of blood, there is no remissions of sin, Hebrews 9. And so we understand in the economy of God an atonement, blood is, uh, is, is, uh, is precious uh, and it's blood that makes atonement for the soul. And this blood is put on the horns of the altar. And then the rest of the blood is pulled at the base of the burnt offering, altar, uh, as, again, as an offering unto the Lord. But we're seeing this emphasis upon the horns of the altar. The children of Israel understood through all these acts and obviously through the Day of Atonement and all the the various other things that were instituted by God, the children of Israel knew that they were sinners and they were in need of uh, of, of a substitute sacrifice for their sin. And so they understood by this process of atonement that God was making the necessary provision for it in order to, uh, to, to, to cover their sin and to cleanse them of their sin. And in doing so, uh, the blood was precious. In actual fact, you understand that the blood was not only put upon the horns of the altar, but on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies once a year. And where would he do? He would put that blood and he would pour it on the mercy seat. Jesus who made propitiation by his blood and the blood of, uh, of the la- in this case the, the blood of the sin offering was put upon the mercy seat who's the mercy seat Christ is the mercy seat hallelujah it is Christ that shed his blood and you see all these connections and types that are associated with the tabernacle and so it was it was ingrained in their understanding the need for a substitute, a need for sacrifice, a need for blood. And that blood was a sweet-smelling aroma. That blood was, uh, when that was offering was made, the glory of God would come. Hallelujah. Now, the horns, let's get back to the horns. The horns were symbolic of a couple of things, and I wanted just to capture this, obviously of intercession. Okay, the blood being put upon the horns by the finger of the priest. But you see, in the typological sense, and, and, and as these things are symbolic, the horns were representative and they represent the power or strength of the truth. The, 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 they speak of strength. The horns speak of strength, they speak of power. And they speak of the power of truth. now this is very important because they knew that in, in an offering up the the sacred sin offering in offering the blood, they knew that God had accepted it, they knew that God was satisfied, and so therefore they had a confidence, and they were able to take an assurance through that process. And they knew that once that blood was applied and and, and even on the horns of the altar, they understood that there was strength in that, there was power in that, that gave them confidence before the Lord in in, in fulfilling. That's why Paul was able to say, according to the law, I was blameless. Not perfect, blameless. In order, the fact that he was uh, doing and fulfilling those requirements uh, that were instituted by God. So, Indo- Israel understood this. Now, what I want you to point out is that in the nation of Israel and in its history, you begin to, as you read the Bible, you begin to see that the horns of the altar became symbolic for, uh, for uh, well, the best way to put it is, for people who were seeking refuge. Okay, if, you, if you've ever read, in, and especially you can turn there actually, we're going to read it in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 1 you'll begin to see there were certain events that took place and on a couple of occasions you read that various individuals went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And so the first one we find is, in, is Adonijah and it's in First Kings chapter 1. So let's, let me get it as well. But it gives us a further insight. First Kings. Now let's go to verse number fifty. Now you know the story here is is Solomon is is being made has been made king by his father David, but Adonijah he had set himself up as the king and he wanted to obviously to usurp the throne. But uh, in doing in having Solomon being ordained by David. Adonijah was in a very vulnerable uh, place because he had sinned. And so here it is in verse 50. Now, Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Why would Adonijah take hold of the horns of the altar? Because he understood what the horns of the altar represented. He understood the symbolism and the truth that surrounded that. And so, uh, and it says in verse 51, and it was told Solomon saying, indeed Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon for look, he's taken hold of the horns of the altar saying, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. You see, Adonijah knew that he has sinned and he knew that he he, he deserved the penalty of his sin which was death. And so, in light of the fact that he is seeking mercy, uh, he flees and takes hold of the horns of the altar. And in doing so, he's pleading for mercy, that make David swear that he will not put me to death to this day. So when they, when they knew that Adonijah had run to take hold of the horns of the altar, they all knew what he was seeking. He was seeking mercy, he was seeking redemption, he was seeking forgiveness, uh, he was seeking peace. And so he's begging for it to, and uh, from Solomon And so, uh, in this instance, at this stage, uh, he survives. But you see, he was seeking refuge. He had fled and he was uh, uh, seeking uh, refuge by laying a hold of the horns of the altar. Because when one laid hold of the horns of the altar, everyone knew what it represented and what it symbolised. Go to 1 Kings chapter 2. We have another instance, verse 31. This one relates to Joab. Now it says, verse 31, then the king then the king said to him, "Do as he has said, and strike him down." and um, wait where sorry, second kings, where am I? Two? verse 31, 32. I've got noted here. Now, that's first Kings. What did I say? yep yeah. okay well, let's start verse thirty uh ah, here we go. we're going to go back to verse twenty eight The news came to Job, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom, so Joab fled to the tabernacle verse twenty eight so Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and there he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada saying, Go, strike him down. You see, again you have Joab and he had again, he had sided on the wrong side and again he knew his life was in danger so what does he do? He runs to uh, to the tabernacle and he lays hold of the horns of the altar and he begs for mercy. In this instance, he doesn't get it uh, because of uh, other, uh, other aspects that are involved. But the point being is that, again, that in the mind of the Israelite, they understood the horns of the altar. They understood what they represented. And uh, if they laid a hold of it and the word was given, then they were assured that they were bound by that and they took confidence from it. But they were seeking mercy. They were seeking refuge. We could go on. I don't want you to turn there and read it, but I'll just state it. In Amos uh, chapter 3, we have God, in verse 14, we have God speaking about the children of Israel. They had erected uh, idols. In actual fact, um, uh, they had set up an an altar themselves, a false altar in Bethel, and they copied the original one and they put horns on it and God said, I'm going to break the horns of the altar. Why? Why? Because he, he under, by the prophet saying that to them, he was saying there, is, there will be no, no atonement for sin. There will be no, nowhere where you can run. There will be no refuge where you can hide. And so you, you, you begin to identify this throughout the children of Israel's history and you begin to identify how the horn of the altar works. You see, Paul, when he wrote Hebrews... And when he, he made this statement to lay hold of the hope, he, the, and he had the horns, I believe, in the same way he had the city of refuge in mind, he had the horns of the altar in mind, and this is what the Holy Spirit is alluding to in, sta- in putting it in this manner and in this way. And so we have laid a hold of the hope. We have laid a hold of Jesus Christ. We lay a hold of him in such a way that we desperately, amen, as we seek the salvation of God, we come to Him, we come to the altar, and we lay a hold of Christ, and we beg for mercy. And knowing, amen, uh, we're not grabbing onto a horn of an altar in the tabernacle. What we're going to see is we are holding onto and laying a hold of Jesus Christ Himself. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. See, the horn is clearly Jesus Christ himself. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, you have the prophecy of Zacharias. And his tongue has been loosed, obviously, after the birth of John the Baptist. And he makes and speaks under the inspiration of God. And listen to what he says in verse 68 and verse 69, speaking of the Messiah and the whole, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 67, and he prophesied and he said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation. And so we're not now, the Old Testament was just a foreshadow. We have the reality now and now the fulfilment has come and Christ is present and we see him as he is. He is the horn of salvation. We have laid a and we are to lay a hold, or we have laid a hold of him, the hope set before us. He's our hope. He's our hope. He's the mediator. He's the redeemer. He's the sacrifice. Isn't it amazing, amen, as you consider these things? Christ is the... City of refuge, Christ is the horn of salvation. You know, when you look at the tabernacle, uh, you can see that Christ is the, the, the altar of bird offering, amen? He offered his body as a sacrifice. We understand that uh, you can, uh, the laver, you can look at, uh, you know, so many various aspects that relate to the, the, uh, the candlestick or the menorah and then the table of showbread and then the altar of incense. And ultimately, as you go to the Holy of Holies, so you have the veil and we, we'll see even there, Jesus is everything in these things and it is exciting to see it because when you begin to understand the veil and and the mercy seat and, and the horns and the things that we're considering, it is so exciting to identify and see Christ in all of these things. The whole tabernacle speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to go through all the details. I only want to stick to that which is relevant to our text in order to establish our, to have strong consolation. But we're talking about the horn of salvation. And remember, the horn speaks of the strength of our salvation or the truth of our salvation. So when we lay hold of that, what does the scripture say in Hebrews? It is impossible for God to lie. He is unchangeable. So when God gives a promise, when God speaks, you can take strong consolation. You can rest assured. Amen. You can be 100% confident in the promises of God that if God says it then the, and I have laid hold of the horn of salvation then amen, I am saved, I am forgiven and I am hallelujah in Christ Jesus and all and, and everything else that comes with it. Glory to God. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. I want you to see it further. Hebrews 10, verse 19. These are familiar texts to many, I'm sure. But listen to what it says. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, having boldness, Confidence, that word all outspokenness. You don't have to be timid about this. You can say it as it is and you can declare it from the rooftops. So it says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil. Now they're talking about the veil that enters into the holy of holies. That is his flesh. We know what happened on the day that Jesus died and he said, it is finished, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And so there is, again, a reference to these things. Look at verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. Jesus is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is what Hebrews is talking about. He's everything. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hope... uh, Sorry... um, Uh, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, there's a relation to the labor, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Hold fast the confession. See, what we say and what we speak in relation to what God says and the truth of God's word is very significant. I'm not talking about word faith stuff i'm talking about this that is written that relates to the purpose of god the plan of god the redemption of god and all the truths that are contained where therein that we must come to this place where we ourselves have full assurance and uh, uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful there it is again the same thing's being reiterated that we just read in our text in hebrews 6 he who promised it's faithful. God cannot lie. It is impossible. What he has said and what he has done is fulfilled and you can rest assured and be assured in it. And this is why we can have strong consolation. So you're seeing these things. I want you to turn now with me to Psalm 118. I know I'm going through a, ver- a few verses uh, here, but, and uh, probably a bit more than what I normally would, but I want, I want us to see it. I want us to identify it in the word of God because it's when we identify it, when we see it that we get so uh, uh, edified in these truths. Now Psalm 118 is part of a series of psalms that deal with uh, various praise and thanksgiving to God and uh, in this particular psalm and I want to, to look at it with you and I'm going to read from verse 1 and I'm going to go on. but I want to, And as we go on, I want you to identify because there's various references to Christ and the horn here. But let's start because this is, this is Israel praising God. Actually, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. Uh, you have to read it in your own time. I don't want to actually waste too much time here. But I want you to go and it was a psalm. First, We'll, go, we'll read from verse 21 in just a moment. But it's a psalm that was sung. It was a psalm that was sung during various feasts of Israel. and uh, it was a celebration, it was a, a, a song of praise that they would rejoice and sing to God as part of their festivals before the Lord, and, uh, and particularly during the Passover period. they would sing this. And you will, and again, we'll identify the connection that's being made for us. Look at verse 21. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. See, we're familiar with that scripture, aren't we? And right now we understand that as they sang it here, they didn't know that they were talking and singing about Christ himself. Because that's he is the, the, the stone which the builders rejected. The Pharisees and the whole religious establishment, having and Israel having rejected their Messiah, he's become the chief cornerstone. And and listen to verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You see, when we don't we can sing that song, but sometimes uh, you know people say, "Oh, thank you, Lord, for this day." That this is the day that the Lord has made. That's not what the Bible's talking about. That Bible's, when, it's, when, when it says that, it's, that this is the day the Lord has made, it's talking about the day of redemption. It's talking about the day of Christ, in the day in which he was offered up as a sacrifice for our sins, when God was going to fulfil that which he had ultimately fu- planned and promised in Christ Jesus. Now look further at verse 25. Save now, O Lord, I pray. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. This is the, to put this into perspective, so that you know what's happening here. those word in Hebrew, "save now," is the word Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna! Is this ringing bells now? Hosanna, Hosanna. And they began to say, uh, in, in the Gospels you begin to read that as Jesus was uh, walking uh, through Jerusalem there and they, uh, and they began, the disciples began to sing and Hosanna, Hosanna. And they began to lay out uh, those leafy branches before him. Now this came, this act was directly related to this particular text. They were singing this and they were fulfilling it. Now look at verse 25 again. So Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. And so here it is again. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the altar. What is it that's being said here? I studied this through and as I read it in the uh, complete Jewish Bible, it gave us further insight as in others, but I'm going to read from this particular one, verse 27, where it says, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. It says, Adonai is God and he gives us light. Join in the pilgrim festival with branches all the way to the horns of the altar." Now, that's the way that they understood it. This is why they were doing that. That's the why they were getting those leafy palm branches and they were laying them down and uh, singing about Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because uh, this is they were fulfilling that which was foretold in this particular psalm and Christ was going himself to the cross. He was going to become and he was bound on the horns of the altar. And so here it is, during the Passover, the disciples and the children are singing Hosanna, Hosanna and they are laying down these leafy branches as they rejoice and praise the Lord and rejoice uh, in the, the Lamb of God who was about to take away the sins of the world. Bind the sacrifice and bring it with joy and then bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar. Again, this is all Christ. You know when it's it's said that when Jesus was uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, and he was with his disciples, he sang. A, the Bible says in Matthew that he sang a hymn. And what hymn did he sing? Some believe because it was Passover and because of the nature of what was going on that this was what they were singing. <laughs> this is what they were singing. And so, uh, and in actual fact, Jesus was preparing himself uh, and he was uh, preparing himself to go to the cross or in other words, uh, he was about to be bound. When Abraham took Isaac, the Bible says uh, that he bound him. He bound him. Before he went to put the knife in, he bound him to the altar. And so you have here Christ is being bound to the horns of the altar and being offered up and his blood is being shed for the sacrifice of our sins. And so again, if Jesus is the horn of the altar when the Bible says we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Lay hold. We're laying hold of the horn of salvation. We are laying a hold of Christ. That's why I love it when it says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That's not about some kingdom authority. It's about, a, it's about where people get so desperate then so, they want God so desperately that they're cluttering each other to lay a hold of Jesus. They're all wanting to lay hold of the horns of the altar. They're desperate to lay a hold of Christ and would to God that we would see that in our generation. Would to God, as we preach Christ and as they hear the gospel, that then, and God would prompt them that they too, amen, would front to Jesus and the kingdom of heaven would suffer violence and the violent will take it by force. Those that are desperate to lay a hold of the horns of the altar. Not to, you know, oh, should I, shouldn't I, da 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 da. Amen. We want people that are decisive that are under the conviction of God, that are fleeing the wrath to come, that are fleeing to the city of refuge, that are laying a hold of the horns of the altar. That's what we want to see. That's what we should be praying for, praise the Lord. In Psalm 18, and again, I'm not going to read it, but you can read it in your own time, but it's a psalm that talks about being in distress. David writes this particular psalm, and he talks about the distress of the wicked. And you know, in, uh, I, I, I'm not going to read it, but I'll refer to verse four where it talks about the pangs of death surrounded me. And uh, I mean, he's he's referring to the trials and the tribulations of life. Because we're on a, we're in this pilgrimage, church. It's not a bed of roses. We have an enemy of our soul. There we see the hostility of the world around us. And, uh, you know, thank God at this stage we're not suffering some of the persecution that they suffer for the name of Christ throughout the world. But who knows what's coming for us? But see, the reality is uh, it doesn't matter what comes our way, hallelujah. We have our hope because we have laid a hold of the horns of salvation. Look at verse number 1 of Psalm 18. David writes, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. This is the triumphant declaration of David, and when he says, uh, you know what, doesn't matter what happens, the death, the, read, you can read on, the pangs of death surrounded me. He talks about being uh, under immense pressure and persecution as he's. Uh, Fleeing, And he talks about how God comes on the wings of the wind, how God visits him. He rends the heavens and he comes down and he says in verse 19, He brought me into a broad place because he delighted in me. Because God delights in his children. Can you say amen? And when we have laid hold and we declare triumphantly our faith in Christ and who who we trust and who we're holding fast to, amen, I believe God gets excited. God gets excited because we're looking to Him to come to our rescue. We're looking to Him to sustain us and the Bible says that He is our horn, the horn of our salvation. As we cling to Him, hold on to Him, come with boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you see the connection? That's why in Hebrews it says that my soul takes no pleasure to the one that draws back. Because you see, God... Has given us every reason to have faith. You, you can't say, "Well, I don't know." I understand. We, all, I, I do understand. We, we struggle. We, our faith is tested. We go through difficult times and trials. Okay, but what I'm saying is this: is God wants us to come to that place where our faith is so strong and determined that we are living in obedience to God. We are walking in the Spirit. We are obeying God. We know we are pleasing Him we know that there's no hidden sin that's separating us and displeasing to him, then you, you can have full assurance. And that's why without faith it is impossible to please God. Because God says, I've laid it all down. I've done everything. Christ has done it all. And we have to lay hold of him. Hold fast the confession of your faith. What you speak in relation to the times of trials and tribulations in relation to God himself is very significant. Because uh, you can speak the words of faith and say, you know what, in spite of what I'm going through, I'm holding on to Jesus, hallelujah. I'm holding on to those horns. I'm not going to let go. And in actual fact, the, our text, if you go back, it says this, the hope that's set before us, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Not only are we exhorted to hold on to him, amen, he is an anchor, he holds on to us, hallelujah. And so, it doesn't matter. You can be in the storms of life. You can have the wind blowing and the sea raging, but the anchor holds. The anchor holds. And so, this is the confidence that we have. God says, don't cast away your confidence. It has great reward. You have a need, come boldly to the throne of grace. Don't shy away. Don't draw back. Don't. Don't don't backpedal, don't turn back your back on God. When you when it's your most difficult, that's when you need to go to Him most. Draw near with a true heart. Full assurance of faith, the scripture says. But you see, this is the issue. The horns of salvation. We have laid hold of the hope that's set before us. And As we consider those things, the horns speak of the the power and strength of truth. And when you're holding on, when you hold on to those horns, it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at you. That's what David's talking about in Psalm 18. The enemy comes in and he just wants to wreak havoc. But but it doesn't matter how strong our foe is, amen, the horns of the altar are stronger. The horns of the altar are stronger. Are stronger. They won't break. They're not brittle. You hold on, you hold fast to Christ Jesus and he who endures unto the end shall be saved. So my question this morning, as I conclude, have you taken hold of the horns of the altar? Uh, have you fled to Jesus? Are you saved? simple question but relevant to some and to the Christian I would exhort you to hold fast hold on that's what the scripture says and draw confidence have strong consolation because we have fled for refuge we have laid a hold of the hope that's set before us this hope we have as an anchor for the soul that Goes before us, even Jesus in Hebrews six, at Jesus, our forerunner, who's gone before us, our high priest. That's why Hebrews talks about a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, and in all points was tempted as we, without sin. There's no excuse. It doesn't matter what we're tempted with, what our struggle is. Amen. Christ has, can help us. He He understands, and he, he will help us. He'll give us the strength. Christ learnt obedience through the things he suffered. Hebrews tells us that. And we see that he, that element, and yet, so that he can help us. And so have strong consolation. God has made every provision, church. And when you read the book of Hebrews, it's so exciting. And I just, as we conclude, I was thinking of that song. It's, it's like Jeremy's. I don't know, it's close to one of my favourite but it's one of my favourites. (laughs) And it's the old rugged cross. And so I will cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. Cling to the cross, hold fast. The horns of the altar is the cross. Hold fast to the cross. And in doing so, remember these words. This is the day that the Lord has made. Not today. Oh, thank God the sun's shining. No, 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 forget that. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day of redemption, the day that Christ was offered, the the day that it all had happened in terms of his death and resurrection and the plan of redemption. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and we will be glad. You can't sit in church like this all the time. Praise the Lord. Get excited, church. That's what they were doing. The Pharisees looked at the disciples because they're carrying on like ding dong. You know, praising. You know. Now, I'm not saying. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me here, okay? But what I'm saying is, is that, and even the, and so even the, the Pharisee says, "Tell your disciples to be quiet. They're carrying on like pork chops. Come on, be dignified. Be religious." No, they rejoicing. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. And then the kids start singing it too and the kids start joining in. And so out of the mouth of babes you have perfected praise. Oh no, praise the Lord. Get excited, church. You catch my point. Praise his name. So I'm going to sing a song now.